ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Friday, the 2nd of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, all at sea, WA farmers urge the federal government to allow a delayed live export ship to restart its journey to the Middle East, despite serious concerns from the RSPCA. And desks deserted. Record office vacancies as work from home continues long after the height of the pandemic. Walking into the city on a Friday morning this morning and it's it's a ghost town here in, in Sydney. The net effect of everything that's happened is we have a office vacancy rate across Australia that is north of 13%. This is a coming crisis, I don't think there's any doubt about that. A New South Wales police investigation into a controversial rally at the Sydney Opera House last year has found there is no evidence that the phrase gas the Jews was chanted. However, investigators say there was evidence of offensive phrases used by some of the hundreds of demonstrators. The Sydney rally came two days after Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel. The protest sparked criticism, but the pro-Palestinian demonstrators say they now feel vindicated and are demanding an apology. Angus Randall reports. With the Sydney Opera House lit up in blue and white to show support for Israel just two days after Hamas's terrorist attack, hundreds of pro-Palestinian protesters made their voices heard. Video emerging from the October rally appeared to show the crowd chanting, Gas the Jews. The vision sparked outrage across Australia, but today New South Wales Deputy Police Commissioner Mal Lanyon says there's no evidence the crowd chanted this anti-Semitic slogan. The expert has concluded with overwhelming certainty that the phrase chanted during that protest as recorded on the audio and visual files was where's the Jews. Police say witness statements from the rally indicated there was evidence offensive phrases were used but they couldn't be linked to specific individuals. Josh Lees from the Palestine Action Group helped organise the rally. He says the claims of anti-Semitism were designed to silence support. We knew all along that that was false and many in the media knew that that was either false or at least a highly dubious claim. Um, And yet still, we saw reported all over headlines everywhere for major news outlets slandering Palestine protesters. We saw the New South Wales police and the Premier attack protesters based on these lies, threaten our right to protest, etc. So I guess we feel a bit vindicated today, but there's nothing to really celebrate in this. Is there anyone you want an apology from? Absolutely. We think we deserve an apology from all of those media outlets who reported this lie without checking any of their facts. Uh, We think we deserve an apology, obviously, from those who doctored this video and put out this fake video, uh, and from all those politicians who jumped on it, including the Premier, uh, to slander Palestine protesters. New South Wales police insist the video, which spread around the world, was not doctored, just a compilation of a longer video. In the aftermath of the Opera House protest and facing global outrage, New South Wales Premier Chris Minns vowed to stop the group from holding further protests. The move was criticised by the Human Rights Law Centre. Josh Lees says the state government created a hysterical atmosphere. But there were immediately after the October 9 protest the a lot of threats made against uh, protesters to invoke existing extraordinary powers. Uh, we were, you know, forced to you know, march on the streets, 
Um, there were threats that protesters were going to be stopped and searched. Peter Dutton was in the media saying protesters should be deported. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has addressed the New South Wales police findings. Well, I, I think the accounts from that night speak for itself. Uh, it was a moment of national shame. It shouldn't have been allowed to take place. And the fact is that many people in the Jewish community across Australia, including here in Melbourne, are feeling uh, very, very scared at the moment. Executive Council of Australian Jewry co-CEO Alex Rivchin is casting doubt on the findings. I'm fairly indifferent, to be honest, because there were multiple independent witnesses there that all gave stat decks attesting to the fact that that phrase, that abhorrent phrase, gas the Jews, was chanted repeatedly. He says the anger shown on that night is more worrying than the chants. We all saw the footage of an angry, vicious mob on the steps of the Opera House, chanting abuse, burning flags and celebrating a mass atrocity. And whether some people heard where's the Jews and others heard gas the Jews or F the Jews, it's really beside the point. The real point here is that there is a group of Australians that has been fed propaganda and lies and they've been directed to harm their fellow Australians in this way. And if not challenged, if not checked, this will rip our society apart. Anyone with information who hasn't yet spoken to police is being urged to come forward. That report from Angus Randall and Jacqueline Breen. West Australian farmers are calling on the federal government to grant permission for a live export ship to restart its journey to the Middle East after it was ordered to return home due to security concerns in the Red Sea. The vessel carrying more than 15,000 sheep and cattle has been berthed in Fremantle for several days while exporters await an answer. The RSPCA's Chief Science Officer, Suzanne Fowler, told RN Breakfast the animals should be offloaded. We're concerned about the cumulative stress and the fatigue that these animals will suffer. By the time they reach there, that'll be more than two months that these animals have been on the ship. The sheep's uh, wool length would have grown significantly. And uh, that's actually one of the things that Australia mandates is that the wool has to be particularly short. And that's to help them deal with the heat and humidity that, that occurs as the ship has to pass through areas like the equator. And so the likelihood that these animals will be able to cope with that journey is very low. And we do expect um, more deaths if that journey was to proceed. That's uh, Suzanne Fowler from the RSPCA. Well, farmers have blamed the Federal Department of Agriculture for delays in decision-making, but the department says the exporters only lodged an application last Friday. John Hassel is the president of WA Farmers. Well, look, we met with the department on Sunday and they just couldn't give us a preferred course of action. Uh, I think they were very indecisive. That, I think, is not good enough in a situation like this. They should have known on Sunday that our preferred course of action is to restock and, and resend, get it on its way as quickly as possible. Now, I don't know why they couldn't have decided that before the ship even got here. They knew it was coming. Uh, and they, That should have been high up there. I think there's been a fair amount of arse covering and... Uh, and I think, uh, you know, worried about what the outcome might look for their careers. So I think it's looking pretty bad right at the moment. The RSPCA's preferred option is that the sheep should be offloaded. Their view is that the livestock have been on the ship for, for long enough. Do you understand that position? Well, I understand it, but I don't agree with it. They're on a floating, uh, floating feedlot in the shade with ventilation. So the air turnover every four minutes, full 100% air turnover every four minutes. Uh, you know, all the feed they can eat and all the water they can drink in the shade, you know, and, I mean, you're, you're from a farming area, you know that sheep will be silly enough to sit out in the sun on a 40-degree day even though there's shade available. So, you know, they, their um, origins are from the Middle East. Sheep 
you know, used to this sort of genetically used to this sort of weather. I don't think there's any issue there. I think the RSPCA just wants their outcome and uh, and don't care about uh, you know the, the the better outcome, which is to get the animals to their market. Do you concede that the animals have been under some stress in this long journey already? No, not at all. Not at all. I think they're content. They, when when the RSPCA says they need to be unloaded and taken to a feedlot, there's more stress in actually unloading and loading the livestock than there is being sitting in the pens and being content. The uncertainty that has surrounded this ship, what does it mean for the live export industry out of WA at the moment? Well, I don't think it should have it make any decision at all. I was speaking to a machinery importer last night and they got told by the insurer that anything that comes through the Red Sea is no longer insurable. So, uh, you know, I think this is an unfortunate circumstance. I don't think it should have a long-term bearing on the live trade. Do you think it's safe to send further ships through or they'll need to go the long way around? I unfortunately think they need to go the long way around. It's, um, it's, you know, it's not the perfect situation. No one likes the animals being on there for longer than necessary. Uh, you know, we want them, want them to their market. They're already ready to go when they leave here, ready to, to be processed. And just having them sitting around waiting, you know, in human terms, we wouldn't like it. I'm not sure the animals are too worried. What do you think is the lesson from what's happened here? that uh, international relations are pretty ordinary and you can never take it for granted, I think, is the lesson. So I don't think there's a lesson for the live sheep trade because it's one of those unforeseen circumstances. That's a John Hassel there, President of WA Farmers. You're listening to The World Today. Well, it's no secret that sporting players and officials are subject to vile online abuse via social media platforms that could be about to change. A Queensland man has been charged after AI technology was used to monitor and report abuse during the Rugby World Cup. Experts say it raises questions over how much social media platforms are doing to prevent harmful content in the first place. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. After the Rugby World Cup final in Paris last year, referee Wayne Barnes received an avalanche of online abuse. It's a sad thing about the sport at the moment. We're all used to criticism. People telling us they disagree with our decision. That's part of the role. But when people make threats of violence against you, against your, your, your wife, against your kids, you know, threats of sexual violence, threats of saying we know where you live, that crosses, crosses a line and that's when people should be held to account. Now, allegations of similar behaviour have led to charges being laid against a Queensland man for using a carriage service to harass. He was identified with the help of artificial intelligence technology, which sifted through abusive comments and messages targeting players and officials during the World Cup. Toby Walsh is the chief scientist at UNSW's AI Institute. They're using AI to monitor uh, social media of players uh, and officials to identify offensive uh, content, uh, people that are abusing those officials and players. Uh, take it down in real time so, um, so that the players and officials possibly don't even get to see it. Uh, notify the platforms um, so that... Uh, some of the accounts might be suspended and in one case actually uh, get the authorities to prosecute the person who was um, sending some rather distasteful uh, uh, messages. So if we've got these third-party sites that are able to do that, should the onus not be on social media platforms to be doing a better job of it themselves? 
That is a fantastic question and one we should be asking the social media platforms. Uh, obviously, um, the uh, sporting bodies here, uh, the Rugby uh, Association is spending uh, a bit more money on this, um, but, you know, Meta today has um, just announced record profits. The stock price has gone through the roof. Um, they're not short of money. Um, and they have said that they will use AI and these technologies uh, to help monitor the site and to remove such harmful content. Um, and it suggests perhaps that they could perhaps invest a bit more money in doing so. Kate Gill is co-chief executive of Professional Footballers Australia. She says similar technology is being used by FIFA. What it does, it provides a filter that sits around the player's digital platforms and it hides any kind of abusive comments that come through those platforms. So it essentially filters them out. It doesn't mean they haven't been sent. The players just aren't exposed to that. The technology was first given a trial run during the Men's World Cup in Qatar. Kate Gill says so far the outcomes are positive and allow the code to better detect and track abuse online. They were able to kind of pinpoint what that abuse looked like and what it was directed at, you know, whether it was general abuse, whether it was racism, whether it was homophobia, whether it was violence, sexism. And the same thing was was done for the 2023 Women's World Cup. And you could actually look at the, the kind of the peaks and troughs and when that abuse was coming in and what kind of situations were spiking that abuse. So it can really kind of drill down as to what the players are, what abuse is occurring and, and how they can kind of nullify that and, and get to the bottom of it. That's uh, Kate Gill there from the Professional Footballers Association of Australia, ending that report from Elizabeth Cramsey. Well, as Australian students return to the classroom, some of them will be dealing with eating disorders. In recognition of that and in response to concerns from parents and advocacy groups, the National Curriculum Authority has revised its guidelines to discourage the use of words such as diets, calories and body mass index in lessons. The authority hopes the changes will help teachers put more emphasis on healthy eating rather than weight. Samantha Donovan reports. The advocacy group Eating Disorders Families Australia gets plenty of feedback about how food is talked about in classrooms. But it was the experience of one member's daughter in particular that prompted them to lobby for changes to the national curriculum's resources. Jane Rowan is the group's executive director. She had just returned to school after a hospital admission for her eating disorder and I believe that the um, assignment was that they had to take uh, their own height and their weight calculate their BMIs and then they had to compare it um, with other students in the classroom. And one of the things about um, anorexia nervosa in particular is that it's, you know, it tends to be quite a competitive disease when you are in the midst of it and you would like to be the person who has the lowest BMI. So of course it prompted Kylie's daughter into a relapse unfortunately. The Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority says resources supporting the school curriculum have been updated to promote talking about food in a positive way and to provide advice about the personal challenges regarding food that students might be facing. The changes to the curriculum resources are being welcomed by dietitians. Dr Fiona Willer is the Vice President of Dietitians Australia and says the change in emphasis is long overdue. It's going to really make a difference um, to virtually all Australian children and adolescents for hopefully many decades and it will save lives. Which of the changes do you think are particularly important? 
Look, there's been a long history of many different types of teachers. Teachers are wonderful, but they have tended to think that using BMI and height and weight and food information is an interesting and accessible way to teach whatever skills that they're um, there to teach the students in their in their discipline. However, doing that we know can really trigger over focus on these factors for kids because they tend to have black and white thinking and there may be these kind of negative body and food messages reinforced at home and and we know that they are socially and so um, the the curriculum changes means that hopefully um, people who are designing the lessons and teaching the lessons are able to check themselves and to understand the kind of impact that over focus on these areas can have on the people that they're teaching. In your practice, have you actually had young students remarking to you that they've been made to feel uncomfortable by lessons at school that refer to things like weight and and calories? Virtually every person that comes to a dietitian for help with uh, weight or food or body concern has a story like when I was at school, the HPE teacher um, you know, had us all weighed or the maths teacher weighed us all and used that and I found that very uncomfortable and it, you, you basically could ask every person at any shopping centre across Australia about their experiences of that and you would find someone who was triggered by it. It's everywhere. That's Dr Fiona Willer there from Dietitians Australia ending that report from Samantha Donovan. The European Union has unanimously approved a 50 billion euro aid package to Ukraine. The funding received unanimous support from EU leaders, despite earlier threats from the Hungarian Prime Minister to block it. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has welcomed the aid, but US lawmakers are still debating whether to send any additional help. Luke Coffey is Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Of course, in Washington, we're still having this ongoing debate about whether or not Congress will authorize additional funding for Ukraine. Everyone uh, in the West was watching how uh, Europe would respond because of the issue over Hungary. It looks like they've been able to resolve this uh, in a satisfactory manner, and which is great news for Ukraine, uh, great news for the transatlantic community, and hopefully will inspire or at least spur uh, congressmen here in the U.S. Uh, into action uh, to authorize more uh, U.S. aid to Ukraine. This assistance from the EU, is it funding? Is it material goods? What is it? Uh, There's been billions of euros allocated for Ukraine to uh, purchase weapons uh, on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, There's been billions of euros allocated for the humanitarian and the direct financial assistance, which helps the uh, Ukrainian government uh, function, which is crucially important right now. We often just focus on the military side of things, but, uh, you know, the government has to run and this economic, direct economic help supports with that. It helps with that as well. How important is that kind of backroom funding to deal with the basic needs of government, not just putting uh, bullets in, in weapons on the front line, but keeping other services and infrastructure going as much as possible? When I was in Ukraine uh, several months ago, it really dawned on me that Ukraine's, Ukraine as a society is at war. It's not just the armed forces, it's the country as a whole. Uh, And if you want the country to win, if you want Ukraine to be victorious, then you have to support the whole country. You can't just pick and choose the bits that you feel comfortable 
for perhaps political reasons to support. And we're having this debate here in Washington where some lawmakers are saying, well, we'll support military aid to Ukraine, but we're not going to support the economic uh, aid to Ukraine without considering the fact that Ukraine has lost almost 40% of its economy because of the invasion. So this is very important when it comes to the overall support package for Ukraine. What do you think the chances are of a breakthrough and getting some more funding through in the US? I'm cautiously optimistic on this. Um, I think uh, we're seeing positive signs in the US Senate. And once the US Senate uh, uh, comes to an agreement and passes uh, legislation, it will put all of the pressure on the House of Representatives, all of the political pressure, all of the media attention onto the House. And the leadership in the House will have to decide whether or not they want to act in the interest of the United States or if they want to play uh, D.C. swamp political games uh, in Congress. And it's really a choice of one of those two uh, things. Um, We can act in the national interest or we can play politics. That's Luke Coffey there, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Finally today, new data shows the national office vacancy rate is 13%. That's the highest it's been since the mid-1990s, as more Australians now choose to work from home. So could vacant buildings in the CBD be part of the solution to Australia's housing crisis? Here's reporter David Taylor. It's a lonely Friday morning walk to his Sydney CBD office for funds manager Steve Johnson. I'm walking into the city on a Friday morning this morning and it's it's a ghost town here in, in Sydney. The Australian Property Council monitors the use of office space. Its latest report shows the national CBD vacancy rate increased from 12.8% to a multi-decade high of 13.5%. Steve Johnson expects the office vacancy rate to climb higher. It's going up by the month because there are completions still coming into the market and as companies' leases expire, they are taking on less and less space. So this trend has certainly not peaked yet. Uh, 2024 is going to be a big year for more completions and I think you're going to see companies further shrink their floor space. So we're not at the end of that process yet. Uh, This is a coming crisis. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Steve Johnson says the extent of the crisis will depend on how many bosses can encourage their workers back to the office. Erin Devlin runs People to People Recruitment Victoria and is involved in contract negotiations between workers and their bosses. She says workers have the upper hand right now in choosing to work from home because the labour market remains tight. Candidates are still wanting to have that flexibility and that option to work from home. I think that in Australia, we're seeing different work from home levels in different states, particularly the states with the prolonged lockdowns during COVID that became more used to those working from home practices, uh, such as Victoria, for example. We're seeing it's much harder for employers to shift back to getting people back in the office. People are typically wanting flexibility in their work environments, and it's going to depend on how in-demand candidates are. We're still in a really tight labour market at the moment and so employers do need to offer really good flexibility if they want to attract great people to their business. And the law may be shifting in favour of workers too. As part of the next stage to industrial relations changes, Labor and the Greens are looking at the idea of introducing a legislated right for workers to disconnect. In other words, legal protection for you as a worker to ignore calls from work 
if it's outside work hours, potentially making working from home more manageable. Green Senator Barbara Pocock is pushing for this reform. So that the reasonable, uh, the employer can certainly contact in reasonable um, circumstances. You know, if, if there's a, a need for a wellbeing check, if there's a need to change an arrangement around work, uh, those kinds of things seem very reasonable. And there are the, the, the employee uh, also, um, of course, at times will need to be uh, responsive where those requests are reasonable. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at a common sense approach that's flexible and adapting to local circumstances, industry by industry. And if fewer workers are returning to CBDs across the country, can the vacant space be turned into affordable housing? Steve Johnson is confident it can. A conversion process here that needs to happen from office to residential and and to industrial that's going to take some time. I'm actually quite excited about what it can do for CBD districts over a 10 and 15 year period as more of it becomes a living city rather than just a working city. I think that's quite exciting in terms of what it can do, particularly for the Sydney CBD. I think Melbourne's already had quite a bit of that. That's Funds Manager Steve Johnson ending that report from David Taylor. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. She's one of the most famous women in the world, so when sexually explicit images of Taylor Swift began appearing on social media, they went viral. Today, we meet with the American journalist who uncovered how a Microsoft tool was manipulated to produce the images. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener.